Ezra chapter 9. We saw last week Ezra and his people arrived safely from Jerusalem, or from uh, Babylon, a city in Persia, Persian Empire. After a very dangerous journey, don't underestimate that. Look back at chapter 8, verse 31. Ezra says, Then we journeyed from the river of Ahava on the 12th of the first month to go to Jerusalem, and the hand of our God was over us, always the key. And he delivered us from the hand of the enemy and the ambushes by the way. Thus we came to Jerusalem. He's finally in Jerusalem. He's arrived. He's now ready to, do, to carry out his mission, which is to teach the word of God and to enforce the word of God. That was the law of the land for Judah at that time. The law of the Lord was the law of the land. Here's the question now that he's in Judah. What are things like spiritually in Judah at this time? What are they like? What, what is he going to encounter when he gets there? Well, that's the first thing we want to look at in the first four verses of chapter 9. And uh, what we want to talk about here is the report that rocks Ezra's world. The report that rocks Ezra's world, verses 1 to 4, chapter 9, says, Now when these things had been completed, <coughs> the, princes, the princes approached me, saying, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands, according to their abominations. Those of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, Ammonites, Moabites, Egyptians, and Amorites, for they have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race has intermingled with the peoples of the lands. Indeed, the hands of the princes and the rulers have been foremost in this unfaithfulness. Ezra says in verse 3, When I heard about this matter, I tore my garment and my robe and pulled some of the hair from my head and from my beard and sat down appalled. Then everyone who trembled at the words of the God of Israel on account of the unfaithfulness of the exiles gathered to me, and I sat appalled until the evening offering. Verse 1 says, Now when these things have been completed. That's a reference to the end of chapter 8, when the journey, <coughs> the journey back to Jerusalem had been completed. When the silver and gold, remember they were given silver and gold from the king of Persia? When that had been carried back and weighed out carefully, that's chapter 8, verses 33 and 34, when the burnt offerings had been offered, verse 35, when the copies of the king's edict, edict had been dispersed. Remember, they, he, the, Ezra was given a copy of the king's edict, probably copies. And in verse 36 of chapter 8, they delivered those to all the uh, ruling local rulers uh, for the Persian Empire in that area. When all that had been done, when probably when the people settled down, when they found a place to live, all this takes time to do all these things. When all that had been done, you're talking about four and a half months later now in chapters 9 and 10. In fact, there's a reference in chapter 10, verse 9. We can look at it if you want now. We'll look at it later. But the reference talks about this being around the 20th day of the ninth month. Ninth month. Well, they got there <coughs> on the first day of the fifth month. So we're talking about over four months later. And so four months plus have elapsed. And uh, had Ezra taught the scriptures, it doesn't say that in chapter 9. Some people think he did. It doesn't say it anywhere in chapter 9. But they had carried out their business. They had taken care of business. They had set up shop in Judah. They're living there now. And, it, and uh, we know that he will teach the word of God, but what doesn't say whether he started that or not. It's at this time, though, Ezra receives heartbreaking news. Now, not everybody would be so heartbroken over this if they heard this news. Uh, there are those who would be 
heartbroken over far less than this. But this, Ezra's not everybody. Ezra is not everybody else. Ezra is different. This is the man who is controlled, heart and soul, by the word of God. And so his biggest griefs in the world are not physical. They're not material. They're spiritual. Now, here's what happened. Chapters uh, 9, verses 1 to 4. Some of the leaders of Judah who had been there and, and, and who had been living there since the first return, they approach Ezra. Ezra gets there. They approach him after a few months. They inform him that, hey, we want you to know that some of the Jewish people here have intermarried with people who are non-Jews. Non-Jews. Not only that, but the people who led in this violation are the leadership. Some of the leaders, for example, priests, Levites are mentioned, princes, rulers. These guys are leading in this. Now, if I just threw this out to this generation, especially if you had a lot of millennials here, they would say Ezra was a racist. That'd be the first thing. What, what's, what's the problem with Jews marrying non-Jews? There shouldn't be an issue here at all. Is it wrong for a Jew to marry a non-Jew? Well, it's not racism that's the issue here. Not at all. We're talking about something else. Uh, as a matter of fact, a famous Jew married a non-Jew in the book of Ruth. And that is Boaz. And we got Ruth the Moabite, one of the forbidden people for the Jews to marry in chapter 9, verse 1 of Ezra. He marries Ruth the Moabite. The difference is this. Ruth had come to the place where she made the decision to <clears throat> follow Yahweh, the God of, of Naomi, her mother-in-law. And she says in Ruth chapter 1, I'm not going to steal your thunder, Brenda. He, she says, you know, by the way, back to this subject, you know women study two books of the Bible, right? Constantly Ruth and Esther. I've already said that, right? Uh, they know those books back and forth, so don't mess with them on those books, all right? But Ruth says to Naomi, your, uh, he, she, he says, your people should be my people, your God, my God. So she came over. She came over to Yahweh and followed him. And so the God-fearing Boaz married a God-fearing uh, non-Jew, a Moabite, and uh, Ruth. And, and so they married. That, the problem with intermarriage was not that the people were from a different race. That wasn't the problem. The problem is the spiritual baggage those people brought into the marriage. That was the problem. Uh, notice Ezra 9, 1 again. Uh, it says, now when these things have been completed, the princes approach Ezra saying, people of Israel, priests, Levites, have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands according to the, their abominations. Those four words are the problem, according to their abominations. Israel is repeatedly warned in the Old Testament, do not intermarry with these pagan peoples. They'll take you down spiritually. Their practices are detestable. God hates their practices. God warned them again and again. He says it again and again throughout the Old Testament. This is always a problem for Israel. Now, if you would, go to Deuteronomy chapter 7. Mike read <clears throat> some of this this morning. Deuteronomy 7, 1 to 4, is a passage on this very subject. There are many passages on the subject. Here's a very clear one, Deuteronomy 7, 1 to 4. This is prior to going to the land of Canaan. He says, when the Lord your God brings you into the land where you are entering to possess it and clears away many nations before you, he clears away the Hittites, the Girgashites, Amorites, the Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, Jebusites, seven nations, greater and stronger than you. And when the Lord your God delivers them before you and you defeat them, you shall utterly destroy them. You shall make no covenant with them, show no favor to them. Why? Furthermore, you shall not intermarry with them. You shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor take your their daughters for your sons, for they will turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. That's going to happen. 
Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you. He will destroy you quickly. That's the problem. They're going to, it's not because they're racist, it's because they're going to take you away (coughs) from serving the living God. And intermarriage under these circumstances inevitably meant a caving in to the false gods, a caving in to idolatry of the peoples. You know, can you hear it now? <clears throat> the discussion of a uh, spouse has who, who's married a Jew who's a Moabite or Ammonite or whatever. You know, honey, I just want us, our children to, you know, be tolerant of all religions. Can't we worship the god Molech? Isn't, shouldn't we teach them about all the gods? <coughs> well, sorry about this. There's a background to this whole story here, the coughing. Anyway, here's the thing. If you sacrifice your children to Molech, the tolerance is the least of your problems now. They're no longer alive, right? But I can see this taking place. And can you hear this now? I mean, we talk about it in our modern-day setting, but back then, I could hear them saying this. Look, <coughs> we have to be you know, tolerant. Verse 2 says, when intermarriage takes place with godless people, it says the holy race. See that, verse 2? The holy race has intermingled with the peoples of the lands. The holy race is literally the holy seed. And uh, when they've, they've intermingled, that's Israel. Now, when I read Deuteronomy 7 earlier, I stopped at verse 4. Verse 6 says, For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. This all has to do with holiness. God wants holiness from his people. They're to be different because they have a, a God who is different. They have a relationship with God that's different. Their God is holy, therefore they're to be holy. So... <coughs> the holy seed had intermingled with the peoples of the lands due to intermarriage. That's a problem. Psalm 106, verse 35 says, Israel mingled. This is, another, uh, this is a recounting of their history. Israel mingled with the nations and learned their practices and served their idols, which became a snare to them. They even, listen to this, even sacrificed their sons and their daughters to the demons. Is this a side issue? This intermarriage business in the Old Testament? No, not a side issue. Very... Great cause for concern. And the other issue that's a cause for concern is that according to the end of verse 2, the hands of the princes and the rulers have been foremost in this. It's not going to work, Luke. I appreciate it. The, the, the water in this case makes it worse. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. Um, I do appreciate it, Luke. Uh, but the, the, the rulers have been a foremost in this unfaithfulness. Verse 1 says priests and Levites were even involved. They're even intermarrying people. They know better. Some of the leadership who know better were the very ones to lead people in this activity. Now, leaders are to be held to a higher accountability, right? Now, every, every Christian is to be accountable, but leadership is held to a higher accountability. They should have been warning the people that this is an unbiblical practice, and what are they doing? They're leading the way. They're leading the way into the practice. And since they set the example, the people naturally follow them. The end of verse 2 calls this unfaithfulness which means a breach of trust. That's used in the Old Testament to say people have violated their covenant relationship with God. This is an extremely serious matter. This has been done deliberately. It's a sin against God. That's why it's critical for God to raise up Ezra's in every generation, to live the word of God, to preach the word of God. This warning against intermarriage between people who know the Lord and people who don't know the Lord is stated in both Testaments, both Testaments, as if the Old Testament wasn't enough, and it says quite a bit about this. New Testament continues the idea. 1 Corinthians 7.39 says about believing widows, they can marry again, what? Only in the Lord. No other way, only in the Lord. 
2 Corinthians 6.14, you know the verse, believers are not to be bound together with unbelievers because it goes on to say, for what partnership has righteousness and lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? What harmony has Christ with Belial? What has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Now that passage can apply to any kind of binding relationship, but what, what greater binding relationship is there in the world than the human relationship of marriage? Not at all. Genesis 2.24, they shall become one flesh. And so, when you have intermarriage between a person who knows God, knows Christ, a person who doesn't, one partner is, you know, backing Christ in his church, the other partner is not, what do you, you think is going to happen? A multitude of problems, all kinds of problems that are going to take place. Now, is there any hope for such a relationship? Because I want to give people hope. Of course there is, because God's grace can break through the heart, the human heart, and save anybody. So we should pray for people in our church who are in this situation. We should pray for their marriage. We should pray for the salvation of the spouse who needs saving. But better to heed the warning in the first place not to marry outside of Christ. So this is the issue Ezra hears about. He hears about it in the land he has come to to teach the word of God. And he's excited about that. And this is the worst news possible. What was his reaction? Look at verse 3 again. He says, when I heard about this matter, <clears throat> I tore my garment and my robe and pulled some of the hair from my head and my beard and sat down appalled. Now, you would think a close relative of his had died. How many people would react like this? They heard, hey, there's a problem with sin in the church. Would they react like this? I mean, some might call this an overreaction. Let's look at it for a minute. First of all, he tears his garment and his robe. Now, taking, tearing one's garment, as you know, in the Old Testament was a common way to express grief. People did it a lot. Jacob did it when, back in Genesis when he was told his son Joseph had died. It wasn't true. But he thought his whole world had ended at that point. You can imagine, you're losing your youngest son, and he just tears his garment. He's just beside himself with grief. Here, Ezra tears both his garment and his robe, which is showing extreme grief. Then it says he pulls some of the hair from his head and his beard. Now, that, that is hard to, it's, it's hard to understand. Isaiah chapter 50, verse 6. I thought of this when I was looking at this. uses the same term, pulled or pulled out. And it's in the context of the suffering servant. <clears throat> suffering servant is the Messiah. And it says, the Messiah says, has him, quoting, has him saying this in a prophecy. He says, I gave my back to those who strike me and my cheeks to those who... <clears throat> pluck out the beard. I gave my cheeks to those who pluck out the beard. Not a pleasant feeling. I did not cover my face from humiliation and spitting. Now, when he, in Matthew 27, 30, he picks up on that thought and it says this. They spat on him. They spat on Christ before the, on the cross. They took the reed and began to beat him on the head. And then it doesn't quote the part about plucking out the beard, but Isaiah 50 mentions it. That act was done by the enemies of Christ. But this is done... This act is done by Ezra himself. This is self-inflicted pain. Um, it's a traumatic... Think about the trauma. He's, he's going through trauma right now. Spiritual trauma, you could say. He's, this is a tra traumatic experience. He's greatly disturbed. This is not normal. This is not normal, people, okay? Can you imagine pulling out... <clears throat> try it right now. Let's all try it. Pull out some of the hair of your head, or some of the hair from your beard. <clears throat> Can you imagine this? We usually think of this as some symptom of insanity. Look, the crazy guy over here is pulling out his hair. Did, did, did Ezra have a mental illness? You know, if Ezra lived today, 
You know what would happen? He would be sent to a psychiatrist and they would diagnose him with bipolar. That's what they'd say. Is Ezra bipolar? No. Is this a show? No. His outward actions show his inner feelings, his incredible inner pain that he feels. It's not for show. It's not contrived in any way. The man's visibly upset and this anguish is oozing out of him. This is just a natural reaction that he has. This is, this is not for show at all. It says he was appalled. He was dumbfounded. He was stupefied. And all he could do was sit down and stare in silence. Just, what is happening here to these people? It reminds you of another scene in Job 2 after Job lost his family, lost his health. His three friends came together to sympathize with him. And Job 2.13 says this, they sat down on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights with no one speaking a word to him, for they saw that his pain was very great. What, are you gonna, what do you say to people who are experiencing great pain, great loss? You, a lot of times you say nothing. You're just with them. I'm just here for you. What can I say? And that's what happened here. And that's what happened with Ezra. They saw, everybody could see his pain was great. Now, this strikes the modern-day readers very odd. Maybe a bit too much. Maybe a bit of an over, overreaction. We don't get it. But we must remember what Ezra's life was all about. It was all about the Word of God. His, all his thoughts were informed by the Word of God. And because that's the case, Ezra treats every sin as deadly serious against the Word of God. That's how he sees it. The truth of the matter is, the reason we're so puzzled by Ezra's reaction is because we are so indifferent to sin. We look at this and we say, what in the world? It kind of shows something about us. We're indifferent to sin. We can become so accustomed to sinful behavior after a while we just rationalize it. Oh, well, just how it is. We're all doing this. Everybody does it. We can learn to live with it. We make excuses for ourselves. We don't develop a healthy hatred for it, and we violate the Word of God, and it's not a big deal to us. Now, I'm not trying to browbeat people tonight. I'm preaching to myself as well, but I'm just trying to get us to think, how should we respond to sinful behavior? How should we respond to it? Not with gossiping, by the way, either. We don't got, you know, people fall into sin. And then you hear somebody say, did you hear about so-and-so? That guy fell into sin. As if to say, I wouldn't fall into that sin. That's not how we want to approach this either. We don't want to do that either. We want to approach it the proper way. How should we respond to sinful behavior? The Apostle Paul you know, dealt with sinners a lot in the church. He dealt with a lot of sin, a lot of sin problems. He was always dealing with something. What was his attitude? I love 2 Corinthians 11.29. If you get a chance to look at it later on, 2 Corinthians 11.29. He says, who is led into sin without my intense concern? That's a great translation, but there's a better translation, the literal one, is this. Who is caused to stumble and I myself do not burn? Or I myself am not set on fire? Paul says inwardly, I am burning with indignation at this. Not because he's mad at people, because he's sorrowing over sin. And I guess anger is included too, but when believers, when the believers Paul ministered to sin, he burned inwardly, caused him deep distress, like he did to Ezra, same reaction. See a parallel there? Ezra was not the only one to experience sorrow over sin. Look at verse 4. Then everyone who trembled at the words of God of Israel, on account of the unfaithfulness of the exiles gathered to me, and I sat appalled until the evening offering, offering. Others gathered to Ezra, and they wept with those who wept too. Not everybody came. Not everybody from Judah came, but a certain group of people came to him. What group? Look at it, what it says. It was everyone who did what? Who trembled at the word of the gods of Israel. That's who came. The ones who trembled 
at the words of the gods of Israel. We talk about reading the Bible all the time, right? Mike's always talking about following along in the scripture. We talk about studying the Bible. We talk about meditating on the Bible. We talk about obeying the Bible. But the, the unique way it's put here, those, those are all very important. The unique way it's put here is interesting. He talks about people who tremble at the word. Have you ever thought of it like that? Trembling at the word. Uh, that word tremble means just that. It's trembling with fear. Sometimes with anxiety in some verses or with uh, fright. The words used in 1 Samuel 4.13 of Eli, who's a priest, and the ark of God has been taken. We talked about this when we were in 1 Samuel. The ark of God was taken by the Philistines, and it says he's trembling for fear because of this. <coughs> as for the person who is, as, as, as regards the word of God, it's the person who's in total reverence and awe of the word of God. It's a reverential fear. That's a far cry from the typical attitude we see today among believers. The awe and reverence is not what it should be. We know this. It's not what it should be in my own life. I see it. There are many times we take more of an indifference to the word, more of an indifference to sin, an attitude, I can take it or leave it. It all goes back to your priority. What is your priority in life? Is it the word of God or not? <clears throat> now, the Lord has special regard for those who tremble at his word. A special regard. The Lord says in Isaiah 66, 1 and 2, But thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool, where then is a house you could build for me? And where is the place that I may rest? For my hand made all these things. Thus all these things came into being, declares the Lord. He says, I did all this. I created everything. What can you do for me? But then he says this. But I will tell you this. To this one, I, to this one will I look. Who will he look to? Who will he regard with special favor? To him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. That's the one the Lord will regard, a humble, contrite spirit that trembles at his word. Think of it like that. Wow, we want to be people that tremble at the word of God. This is the group that gathered around Ezra. When they saw him in his misery, they gathered around him. They sorrowed with him. You know, Ezra's spirit was contagious. This sorrow for sin he showed was contagious, and others saw it. And they feared the Lord, and they assembled together. Let me ask you a question. Does sinful behavior rock your world like it did Ezra's? Does it rock our world, or, we, or is it just another thing? We don't worry about it. Do we sorrow first over our own sin, and then over the sins of others? Now, a lot of people are good at sorrowing over the sin of others. But first of all, we need to sorrow over our own sin. Now, Ezra was sorrowing over the sin of others, but Ezra was not a hypocrite, as we've already seen. He was genuinely concerned for his people. Do we grieve that sinful behavior will hurt others, affect others, harm others spiritually? Or are we indifferent to all this? Do we really care? You know what the cure for indifference is? It's to allow the word of God to shape and mold your thinking to such a degree that you share the Lord's attitude towards sin. You see it like he sees it. You see it like Ezra sees it. This is sin. This is wrong. This is something God hates. We need to grieve over it and then do something about it. So we see that this is the report that rocked Ezra's world. Secondly, the prayer that reveals Ezra's heart. The prayer that reveals Ezra's heart in verses 5 to 15 we now move to one of the great prayers of the entire Bible. Daniel reminds me of Daniel chapter 9, another great prayer. It's a prayer of confession, and it really lays bare the heart of Ezra. You can see what he's thinking, how he feels, uh, how he is. The prayer goes from the general to the specific. The first thing we see here is an, is an admission of deep guilt. An admission of deep guilt. Look at verse 5. But at the evening offering, Ezra says, I arose from my humiliation, even with my garment and my robe torn, and I fell on my knees. 
and stretched out my hands to the Lord my God, and I said, Oh my God, I am ashamed and embarrassed to lift up my face to you, my God. For our iniquities have risen above our heads. Our guilt has grown even to the heavens. Since the days of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt. And on account of our iniquities, we, our kings and our priests, have been given into the hand of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, and to plunder, and to open shame, as it is this day. The mission of deep guilt. The offerings, the evening offering was a, was a daily sacrifice, but what good is a sacrifice without accompanying repentance? To obey is better than sacrifice, right? And so Ezra chooses this time to pray. He says he arose from his, his humiliation. I like that term. He arose from his humiliation. That's a good way to describe what's happening right here. It may, and it probably included fasting, according to chapter 10 later on. We'll see that. He's in mourning. He is in misery. You know, Jay, I thought of James chapter 4. James 4, 9. Now listen to this. You want a life first? Here it is. Be miserable. There you go. Just take those two words. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned in the morning, your joy to gloom. Why are you preaching in a gloom and doom sermon here? We're talking about repentance. That section in James 4 is about repentance. This is what Ezra was doing. He was living out James chapter 4, verse 9 here. <coughs> he kneels down. He spreads out his hands to pray to the Lord. By the way, it's to the Lord. His hands are spread out. It's not a show or anything. He begins to pray. Verse 6, he says, Oh, my God, I am ashamed and embarrassed to lift up my face to you, my God. Ashamed and embarrassed? Have you ever started a prayer like that? Have you ever prayed that? Let's pray, children, for we go to bed tonight. We are ashamed and embarrassed. You ever prayed like that? You know, I, what did Ezra have to be ashamed and embarrassed about? I haven't seen it. Have you, did I miss something in the previous chapters? I didn't see anything Ezra did that would cause shame or embarrassment for himself. Let's just keep reading. Maybe we'll see what happens. Look at verse 6, the rest of it. He says, I'm ashamed and embarrassed, my God, for our iniquities have risen over our heads. Our guilt has grown even to the heavens. Now, he started out saying, I am ashamed and embarrassed. Now he switches to, personal, to plural personal pronouns, and he says, he talks about our iniquities, our guilt. You keep reading the rest of this. keeps doing this. His, for Ezra, the prayer is about us and our and we. What's he doing? Doing the same thing Daniel did in chapter 9, Daniel chapter 9. He's identifying himself with the people of God. Identifying himself with the whole covenant community of Israel because God looked upon his people as one people. All together, all for one, one for all. The sins of one person affected the whole community, sometimes the entire Israel community. Remember the sin of Achan in Joshua 7. Achan took of the accursed thing. He wasn't supposed to. Spoils of war God had banned. And when God found out, or God knew right away, but Israel was defeated all because of one man's sin. All it took was one man to ruin everything for everybody. You can read Joshua 7 for that account. Yes, people were judged individually by the Lord, yes, but there's also, here's the word, a corporate solidarity. There's a corporate solidarity aspect of this whole thing. The nation of Israel stood together as one man, like a team, wins or loses together. But they're all as one man. The church is like that too. There are many members, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, but what? One body, right? One body, all one body we. And the thing, we need to think in terms of not ourselves, myself only, but our, as, the, as I relate to the body of Christ, how, do I, how does all this thing work together? The body of Christ is together. Still, Ezra's innocent of any wrongdoing. He's never done anything wrong. 
yet he identifies himself with the people. You know, that's, what's, that's also what's amazing about Christ. He who knew no sin became sin for us. He didn't do anything wrong. He was totally innocent. Yet he bore the wrath of God for sinners. That, that's amazing. Now, Ezra goes on to, to speak of the level of guilt incurred. How much guilt are we talking about here? Look at verse 6. Our iniquities have risen above our heads. Our guilt has grown even to the heavens. Wow, that's not minimizing sin, is it? That's maximizing sin, showing it what it really is, showing for what it really is. He understands the full implications of what this means, of the, of the consequences of what this means before, before God and before the people. This is exceedingly sinful. That's how we should view sin. That's how we should view sin. Verse 7, since the days of our fathers, talks about the history of Israel to this day, we have been in great guilt. On account of our iniquities, we, our kings, our priests, have even been given to the hand of the kings of the lands, to the sword and so on. The history of Israel is a history of repeated sin and judgment. They keep sinning and keep getting judged by God. As a result, Israel suffered in all the ways mentioned, the sword, captivity, open shame, even to this day, Ezra even admits to this. There's an admission of deep guilt. We've sinned against you, Lord. This is where confession starts. And secondly, there's a recognition of God's grace. A recognition of God's grace. I love these two verses, verses 8 and 9. Look at verse 8. But now, for a brief moment, grace has been shown from the Lord our God to leave us an escape remnant and to give us a peg in his holy place that our God may enlighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving our bondage. For we are slaves, yet in our bondage our God has not forsaken us but has extended loving kindness to us in the sight of the kings of Persia to give us a reviving to raise up the house of our God to restore its ruins and to give us a wall in Judah and Jerusalem. Thank God all is not lost. You know, verse 8, one of those verses that one of the great statements of the Old Testament all too often overlooked. People don't even talk about it. But this is a tremendous verse. You know, people say, well, the Old Testament doesn't have any grace. Well, don't tell Ezra that. He thinks it does. He thinks it does. Ezra sees what others may not see in his time. God has given us a period of grace. He saw it clearly. He could see it. Ezra says this for a brief moment. For a brief moment, grace has been shown from the Lord. Thank goodness for this. Thank God for this. A brief moment. This is a great word of hope. The brief moment has been at least started about 80 years ago when the first returnees came back to Jerusalem after the Babylonian captivity. They came back. It's a brief moment in comparison to the long history in verse 7 of Israel. Israel's got a long history, but now we have a brief moment of grace. God has been gracious to them. His favor has been shown to them. He's extended to them his loving kindness. He's allowed them to have an escape remnant, it says. He's been so good to them. He's, and the term is used, that, did you notice the term escape remnant in verse 8? That term has been used here. It's used in verse 13. It's used in verse 15. It refers to, in general, to the remnant that escaped from the Babylonian captivity, but in more particular, those who left Persia and came to Jerusalem. That remnant. He says, <coughs> he talks about the peg. They, uh, they, God gave us a peg in his holy place. That's a tent peg that, went, that, was dri that you drive deep into the ground to secure the tent. And that was the temple they rebuilt, the holy place. God let them have that again. So they could have that, they could have that holy place again, that temple. This is all very encouraging. A word of encouragement in the midst of despair. God has enlightened their eyes, it says in verse 8, to make their eyes shine, to give them vitality, to give them joy again. And to grant them a little reviving in their bondage. A little revival. 
What bondage? Well, there are slaves, he says. Not in the fullest sense, but what he means is this. They're still under Persian authority. They're still, under, they're still being governed by foreigners. So they're slaves in that sense, although they've been treated very well. Yet in spite of that, God has revived them to a new life. He's get, granted them loving kindness. He's granted them the favor from Persian kings. The Persian kings have done so many things for them. To rebuild the temple, give them that opportunity, and give them a wall in Judah. Now, he's going to give them a physical wall in Judah, but probably means just protection right now for the Jewish community. Now, wouldn't it be foolish to throw, Ezra is saying this, wouldn't it be foolish to throw all this away because of sin? Because we're in, now we're doing things that, this happened early on in the Old Testament. Why are we doing this after the Babylonian captivity? This is foolish. Don't throw it all away because of sin. I just remind you of Romans 6.1. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? May it never be. God forbid. Absolutely not. You could, Mike talked about this morning. Certainly not. God's grace is never to be scorned. Don't send away your day of grace. Don't throw away the opportunity to repent. Never do that. There's a recognition of God's grace. We have to realize that. And then finally, there's a confession of specific sin. That's in verses uh, 10 to 15. Specific sin. He zeroes in now on the specific sin. And he says, first of all, that God's commandments have been violated. Verses 10 to 12. Verse 10. Now our God, what shall we say after this? For we are forsaking your commandments, in which, which you have commanded by your servants, the prophets, saying, the land which you are entering to possess is an unclean land. This is when they went to Canaan. With the uncleanness of the peoples of the lands, with their abominations which have filled it from one end to, to end, with their impurity. So now, do not give your daughters to their sons, nor take their daughters to your sons, and never seek their peace or their prosperity, that you may be strong and eat the good things of the land and leave it as an inheritance to your sons forever. It reminds us of Deuteronomy 7. Don't do these things when you go into Canaan. God said that if they went into Canaan, the people there were evil, they had detestable practices. Don't pick up on all that. Your job is to conquer Canaan, not compromise with it. They're expressly warned again and again. They're not to intermarry with godless people. You know, <clears throat> I've said this before, if you want to know what pleases the Lord and what displeases Him, read your Bible. Because sin is very clearly defined there. And it tells you very clearly what's wrong what's right. And Ezra tells the Lord, they have forsaken the Lord's commandments. They've broken your commandments. And then God's mercy has been ignored also. Verse 13. After all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and our great guilt, since you, our God, have required, requited us less than our iniquities deserve, and have given us an escape remnant as this. Shall we again break your commandments and intermarry with the peoples who commit these abominations? Would you not be angry with us to the point of destruction until there is no remnant or nor any who escape? O Lord God of Israel, you are righteous, for we have been left and escaped remnant as it is this day. Behold, we are before you in our guilt, for no one can stand before you because of this. There's mercy God's been merciful to us throughout our history. <clears throat> he points out two things in particular. First of all, they've been punished less than their sin deserves. Verse 13, he says in verse 13, look at that phrase, you, you are God have requited us less than our iniquities deserve. We, we could have been a whole lot, punished a whole lot more, but you have shown mercy to us and given us a break, so to say. You know, if you're speeding, going over the speed limit, it's funny how everybody looked up when I just said that. And you're caught. Now I got your attention, right? <clears throat> and you're caught. 
Wouldn't you, want, wouldn't you rather have a warning as opposed to a speeding ticket? Oh, I hope he gives me a warning. Don't you ever think that? I hope he gets, you're praying for a warning, right? You're going 95 miles an hour and you're praying for a warning instead of a speeding ticket. Psalm 103.10 says, God has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor punished us according to our iniquities. He could have done so much more. He could have wiped us all out completely. He could have wiped Israel out. But he showed them mercy. He didn't punish them anywhere near. Seven years of Babylonian captivity could have been twice that long. Could have been a lot worse. Yet God's merciful. They've been punished less than so have we than our sins deserve. Thank God for Christ died on the cross. We're not going to be facing condemnation from God at all. <coughs> and then secondly, the Lord gave them an escape remnant. He didn't have to, but he did. He had mercy upon them. They should recognize that. They should be thankful for that. They should be thankful for the brief moment of grace they have, that they've had for 80 years now. But they're not. They're sinning against them. And considering this mercy of God, as we're praised in verse 14, shall we again break your commandments and intermarry? This is not the first time this has happened. Shall we do this again, really? After all this time, after all, after we've been taught, again, we learned this lesson again and again, and we haven't learned the lesson, apparently, and we've been in the Babylonian captivity, again we're going to do this? Is it possible that God might even destroy them as we praise in his prayer? He might even destroy us. He's deadly serious in his prayer. That's his concern. So what does he do in verse 15? How does he end his prayer? He leaves it with the Lord. O Lord God of Israel, you're righteous, for we have been left an escape remnant. Behold, we're before you in our guilt. No one can stand before you because of this. What are we going to do? Cast ourselves upon the mercy of God. What else can we do? That's how he ends it. That's how he ends this prayer, at least. Ezra cast himself upon the mercy of God. You know, we'll see how this ends next week, but for right now, remember, we have grace shown from God. We have grace from Christ. He took our place on the cross. He suffered in our stead. He credited us with his righteousness. Uh, but however, he expects us to take sin seriously and confess it and forsake it. You know, he gave us grace freely, but that grace works in our life to build holiness. This prayer reveals the heart of a man who loves God and loves God's word. Loves the things of God. Does this prayer reflect how you and I view the Lord and his holiness? Does it reflect it? Or are we far away from this? I don't know how, how about you, but I've been convicted studying this, reading this, looking at this. I've been convicted thinking, man, I have a long way to go. But I tell you one thing, the, the hope is we are, a work in, we are a work in progress. We are God's work in progress, thank goodness, and God will help us. God can help us to be the people we need to be. And that's our prayer tonight. Get help, God helps to be people who love your word and who, get your, who react like you do when we would face moments like this and that we're transformed by the thinking of our, by the renewing of our mind. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask him to help us to be that way. Father, we are grateful again for your word. Lord, we pray that we'll truly love you with all our heart. We pray that we'll um, be people of the word. Father, we fail so often. Uh, we're we just confess that. We confess our lack. We confess our indifference tonight to sin. We pray you'll help us to hate sin like you do, see it like you do, uh, love the things of God, love what you ha love, hate what you hate. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.